0: This uh, past week on Sunday morning, of course, I preached about those nail-scarred hands and how that Thomas refused to believe Christ until he actually saw those and said that he would put his finger into the nail prints of his hand and thrust his hand into Jesus' side. But also, in that same passage of Scripture, Thomas made that great confession, my Lord and my God. Well, next week on Sunday morning, we're coming back to The same text again, and we're going to talk about the nail-scarred hands once more, only we're going to talk about it in a different way. And I'm going to be preaching on Sunday morning about the problem of suffering and why does God allow suffering, and I'm going to use that text. And I think you may find some interesting things there as to why that God allows people to suffer. Why doesn't God get rid of suffering if he has the power to do so? Well, it's because suffering has some very important aspects to it, some things that Christians really do need. So if you wondered about it, wonder why God allows it, then you need to hear that message on Sunday morning. Hopefully that'll give you a little bit of comfort of why we have to go through those kinds of things. Okay, let's open our Bibles, if you would please, to Ephesians chapter 5. And we'll continue our study here in this fifth chapter. I've mentioned on several occasions that the book of Ephesians is a study of contrast. Have You ever seen those advertisements on television and magazines where they advertise these diet pills and these great diets that people go on? And they always give you this picture of the before picture before they started on that fabulous diet, and then they have the after picture. There's quite a bit of contrast between those two pictures, isn't it? Well, as you read, as you read um, the Book of Ephesians and its fifth chapter as well, that we all have a study of contrast, and if you can get in your eye, your, in your mind the idea of before pictures and after pictures, that's what Paul is doing throughout the book of Ephesians. Well, remember, he started off by with the before picture of a person before he comes to know Christ as his Savior, and he talks about him being dead in sins. Then he gives us the after picture, and that's when a person comes to know Christ, and he accepts him, uh, receives him as his Savior. And then um, we, we, we read on, and we find out where Paul talks about uh, a picture of no hope and then a picture of renewed hope. And he talks about alienation from God. That's the before picture. Then he speaks of fellowship with God. That's the after picture. Well, when we come to chapter 5, Paul continues that type of comparison. And just lately, we've been talking about the difference between darkness and light. He says, before you were darkness. And now he says, you are light. And that's a contrast between the two. And in the verses that we're going to read tonight, Paul continues the thought of contrast. And this time he's talking about being wise and unwise. A person who doesn't know Christ as the Savior is unwise. He's spiritually blind, and and, uh, there's things that he doesn't know. But a saved person, that person has been given new wisdom in Jesus Christ. If you've read the Sermon on the Mount, which I'm sure most of you have... Jesus gave a contrasting picture in Matthew about the wise and the unwise. And he talked about the foolish man who was unwise. And he said, or he talked about people who hear the words that Jesus speaks, but they don't really pay attention to and they don't heed the words that he spoke. That's an unwise man. And he compared it to a person who builds his house on the sand And he says, that person builds his house there, it's without a firm foundation... And so when the storms come and beat against that house he says the ruin of that house is great because the foundation isn't proper he's a foolish man because he hasn't built his house in the right place and of course he's comparing that to our faith in him we need to listen to what he says and heed what he says but then he contrasts it to the person who is a wise man and he says the wise man builds his house upon the rock and so when the storms come and the and the winds beat against that house that house stands firm because it has a firm foundation. So he says, a wise man, he's the one who listens to what I say, and he does my words and my will. Well, this is what we're talking about here. Paul is bringing up the very same kind of comparison as he talks about the wise and the unwise. And he's telling us that the wisdom of the world is what we don't need. That's what they have, and they don't understand the things of God. But a Christian has been given new wisdom in Christ, and we have the ability now to understand God's Word and to apply it to our lives. Well, let's read about this. Let's stand, if you would, please. We're looking at Ephesians chapter 5. And beginning with verse number 15, he says, See then that ye walk circumspectly, not as fools, but as wise, redeeming the time, because the days are evil. Wherefore, be ye not unwise, but understanding what the will of the Lord is. Our Heavenly Father, we thank you for the reading of your word tonight. And I just ask you, Lord, you'd speak to our hearts through this message. Help us to learn something from your word. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen. You may be seated. This evening, I'd like to talk to you about three ways that we can walk wisely according to these verses. Now, if you're saved, the Bible does say that you can walk wisely. You found a wisdom that the world doesn't have and one that the world is so desperately seeking for. There are people in this world, and there have been throughout the centuries, who've done their best to seek after wisdom, to try to find the truth. They want to try to find out what's right. Many people in the world are really looking for the right answers, The Apostle Paul experienced that when he went to the city of Athens. And there he was standing there preaching to the people on Mars Hill. And the people that he was talking to were the Epicureans and the Stoics. And those people were from two different schools of philosophy. But what they were trying to find out was to search for wisdom and find out the truth. And so Paul preached to them the wisdom of God. And Luke records that those people that he preached to there were always seeking something new, always telling and hearing something new. In 1 Corinthians, Paul talked about how the Greeks sought after wisdom. He said the Jews require a sign. And even though the Greeks did seek after wisdom, the Jews required their sign. They never really found out what they were looking for. But the Bible teaches that as Christians, we've found it. We have it. We have the wisdom of the Spirit. And so he's telling us here that now that we have that wisdom, we need to walk in that wisdom, we need to cultivate it, and we need to show it to those that are around us. Now, I'd like for us to notice some things about walking wisely tonight. The first thing that we need to do, if we're going to walk wisely, or you need to do, we all need to do, is to analyze your walk. You need to analyze your walk. The first thing that you have to do is just analyze and see if in fact you are walking wisely. Now Paul says here in verse number fifteen, see then that ye walk circumspectly. And circumspectly means to be walk to walk carefully and to walk diligently. It means to walk accurately. Remember, a few years ago I was teaching on this verse and I used an illustration about a soldier. A soldier has to walk circumspectly. He has to look to every side. He has to look around him because he knows there's danger out there. He has to be very careful about where he walks. So he looks side to side as he goes along because he knows the enemy is there. He doesn't want to be surprised and he doesn't want to be attacked unawares. When we get into chapter 6 here in Ephesians, we're going to be talking about Christian warfare. And if the Bible tells us that Satan walks about as a roaring lion seeking whom he may devour, then you need to be sure that Christian people, we've also got to be looking around because the devil's out there, he is that roaring lion, and we need to expect that he's going to attack us. Well, we need to analyze our walk. Well, how do we do that? Well, first of all, consider the principles that guide your walk. A person who walks circumspectly is always aware of the rules by which we live. And the rule book, or the guidebook, of course, is the Bible. Everything that we need to know about our relationship with God, we can find in God's rule book, the Bible. A couple of years ago, uh, when Nathan first got out of high school, he was considering joining the Navy. Our son-in-law, Jason, is in the Navy, and so he gave uh, Nathan this book called The Blue Jackets Manual. Steve, you know what the Blue Jackets Manual is? Of course you do. The, Ju- the Blue Jacket Manual is the Navy's guidebook, and it's about this thick, and it has all the rules and regulations about being in the Navy. And if you're going to advance in the Navy, if you're, if you're going to step up and increase in rank or whatever it is, you've got to make sure that you know that Blue Jacket Manual. Well, the same thing is true with the Bible. You've got to be sure that you know the Bible. If you're going to grow and you're going to advance and become more spiritual in your Christian life, you've got to spend some time in the Bible. Now, a Navy person, if he doesn't learn that blue jacket manual, and if he doesn't have those rules down, if he doesn't know what he's supposed to do, he's not going to stay in the Navy very long. They're going to get rid of that guy because he hasn't learned the rules and the regulations. Well, the Bible's that way too. Paul said that we have to learn to rightly divide the word of truth. David knew the word. He said in Psalm 119, he said, "Through, Through thy precepts I get understanding, therefore I hate every false way. Thy word is a lamp unto my feet and a light unto my path. So it's impossible for us to walk circumspectly and to know what's out there when you're walking in the dark. You've got to walk in the light, and we find the light in God's Word. It's the rule book. It's the lamp. It's the principles by which we live. And the only way that we're going to see that the next step that we take is, in fact, God's step is if we find out what's in the Bible. Now, the world, as we know, likes to walk impulsively. The world says, do your own thing, go your own way. The world tells you that truth is relative or truth is whatever you want it to be. But there is only one truth, and the truth in the Bible is that one truth. And that's what we need to know. So we've got to consider those those principles under which we walk. Then the next thing that you need to do, you need to consider the priorities of how you walk. And the priority of the Christian life is that we please God. In Colossians chapter 3, Paul wrote, Servants, obey in all things your masters according to the flesh, not with eye service as men pleasers, but in singleness of heart, fearing God. And whatsoever ye do, do it heartily as to the Lord and not unto men. Now, the specific application of those verses would be to those people in that time where people... ...lived as slaves and they had a master over them. And we notice here that Paul does not tell slaves, he doesn't say, kill your master. He doesn't say, rise up against him. No, he says, obey him. And he says, do it cheerfully. And the reason is, respect for authority is pleasing to God... Now, I'm not going to go into all the implications of, of those verses and, and that statement for that time period, but I do think we can make an application for us today. And that is that all of us that are saved, we have become God's servants. And, and we serve the Lord Christ because obedience is our path to blessing. God, God blesses when we obey Him. Living a Christian life and, and separating ourselves from the vices of the world, that's not a burden for us. And the reason it's not is because we know that whatever makes God happy makes his people happy. You'll be happiest when you serve God. John wrote in First John chapter 5, By this we know that we love the children of God when we love God and keep his commandments. For this is the love of God that we keep his commandments and his commandments are not grievous. So the priority of the Christian life is to do whatever pleases God. Sometimes churches forget about that and they forget about God's plan and program and they forget about demanding Christian principles and Christian priorities because they're really not too interested in pleasing God. What they're really interested in is being men-pleasers. They just want to please everybody so they can get as many people in the church as they can get. And so they they never preach about separation from the world. They never deal with the issues of sin because they know that people are not going to come and fill the pews up unless you preach something like, come as you are and stay as you are. They don't want to change. And so churches that uh, forget about separation, forget about all these principles of God's word, they know if they preach that, the money stops flowing. And so that changes the whole perspective. See, a priority of sound doctrine is not going to attract very many people. If I stand up here and I preach that there is a right way to become a member of Berean Baptist Church, and if I tell you that you need to come to Christ through, through uh, salvation, uh, salvation in Him by your faith, uh, your repentance by the grace of God, and then I teach you that obedience and scriptural baptism, that that's what a Christian needs to do, and it has to be under a proper authority... We're not going to attract as many people if I get up and say, You know something? Your baptism doesn't really matter. It doesn't really matter what your former doctrine is and, and what all that's all about. That doesn't matter. We accept all comers because we're all working for the same place, aren't we? We're not generic Christians. And we don't believe in generic Christianity. We have a sign out there that has Baptist on it. And that's because we teach Baptist doctrine... And we teach that because we believe that's what was delivered to those first saints by the Apostle Paul and Jesus himself. Jude said, earnestly contend for the faith which was once delivered unto the saints. And so we're not going to change our doctrine because we want to please people. This is what we're trying to do at Berean Baptist Church. We're not going to substitute what people like to hear in order that we can please them. Our priority is to be a God pleaser. When people get right with God, whatever pleases God will also please people. It always works that way. Now, the third way to analyze your walk is to consider the people among whom you walk. You see, a wise Christian is a person who understands that everything that we do somehow has an effect on other people. We all know we live in a me generation... I mean, everybody's always concerned about number one. And most people really don't care if what they do harms you or hurts you in some way. They really don't care about that. That's not a Christian attitude. We need to understand everything that we do affects somebody else. And so a Christian will spend a lot of his time doing things that may not please himself in order that he may fulfill the needs of others. Now, the most important need that anyone has is that we know Jesus Christ. We can take care of people's physical needs. Goodness knows, we we spend billions of dollars every year taking care of material needs for people. But what a person needs most is not the material. What he needs most is in the spiritual realm. He needs to know Jesus as the Savior. And that's what we have to be concerned about first. And that's why we need to consider these people among whom we walk. Now, Paul said something interesting in 1 Corinthians 6... He was discussing uh, the relate relationships in the church. He'd just finished speaking about church discipline, and we read a little bit about that last Sunday, or last Wednesday evening. He talked then about the issue of lawsuits between believers, and he sort of wondered, why is it that Christians cannot suffer longer with other Christians? And so he wrote this in 1 Corinthians 6, verse 12. He said, All things are lawful unto me, but all things are not expedient. All things are lawful for me, but I will not be brought under the power of any. What he's talking about here, he says, there are some things that I can do as a Christian that that thing by itself, it's not wrong. There's nothing wrong with it. But he says, I don't do it because it's not expedient. In other words, this action that I may want to do, something that I want to do, it may not be immoral, it may not be... uh, against God's word in any way, or there's no specific command about that. But he says, I don't do it because it's not expedient, or it's not to the best advantage of what I'm trying to do to win people to Christ. Now, in another place, you remember, he talked about eating meat that was offered to idols. And Paul knew that meat that was offered to an idol, that in itself was not defiling. I mean, he thought and taught that an idol was a dumb thing. Just, Eating meat that was offered to that, there wouldn't be anything wrong with that. But he said, and he realized that that might be offensive to somebody. Somebody who didn't really understand all of this. and So it might be offensive to them. And so he said, if meat make my brother to offend, I will eat no flesh while the world standeth, lest I make my brother to offend. Why does he say something like that? It's because he was considering people. People are different. They come from different backgrounds. Sometimes you, have, sometimes you have to deal with people in different ways. You have to approach them a different way in order to win them to the Lord. Uh, a good example of this is when Paul was standing before King Agrippa. He was, he was about ready to make his defense, and we notice as Paul did that, he didn't stand in front of King Agrippa and, and just tell him, you know something, Agrippa, before I get started here, I just want to tell you what a wicked man that you are. You, you've got some evil in your life. You're a heathen, and I just want you to know that before I start talking to you here. Well, he didn't do that. He, he didn't. He didn't tell him about all of his wicked practices. Not in this setting. Now he might do it in another. But when he's standing in King Agrippa's courtroom, he stood there with respect. He respected the position of King Agrippa. And here's what what uh, what. Uh, Paul said. Now, he toned down his rhetoric a whole lot, and he approached him in this way. In Acts chapter 26, he said, "...I think myself happy, King Agrippa, because I shall answer for myself this day before thee, touching all the things that I am accused of of the Jews, especially because I know thee to be expert in all customs and questions which are among the Jews. Wherefore, I beseech thee to hear me patiently." Well, what he did was take a wise approach. He wasn't going to offend Agrippa, even though he knew he was a sinner. How's he going to win him? How's he going to speak to him unless he comes to him with the right approach? And so he's thinking about that, thinking about the person among whom he walks. And we have to do the same. What you can't do is you can't go out there with your big black King James Bible and hit people over the head with it and disable them with it before you start to talk to them in love about what you want to tell them. You can't do that. And you can't go out there and stand outside of bars and yell at people as they're going in and tell them what sinners they are. You can't do that because you're not going to win people like that. Now, we, have, we really have too many Christians that are, that are smug and they're self-righteous and they pound on their chest, you know, and, and talk about how uncompromising they are. We're the rock rib fundamentalist, And when they say things like that and act like that, they turn people off. What we need to realize is that before we were saved, we were no better off than the worst drunk in a gutter in Santa Rosa. No better off at all. Don't come off with that holier-than-thou attitude with people. Here's what the gospel is. The gospel is just like one beggar giving another beggar bread. That's what we were. We were beggars, and when we give the gospel to somebody else, we're just giving bread to other beggars. So the wisdom of God says you need to analyze yourself, you need to see where you came from, and then you need to learn to apply the right tact when dealing with people. So that's what it means to walk circumspectly. Walk wisely. You start out by analyzing your walk. You look at the principles that guide your walk, the priority of how you walk, and the people among whom you walk. Now, let's go on, because there's more to consider here about walking wisely. So you analyze your walk. The next thing that you do is you maximize your time. Now, notice verse number 16 once again. He says, "...redeeming the time because the days are evil." A wise person understands how important time is. Paul uses the word redeeming here, and that's a word that means to purchase. It means to buy up. Specifically, what he's speaking of is recovering our time by not allowing our time to be wasted. And the reason that we don't want to waste time, he says, is because the days are evil. We're living in an evil world And we've only got so much time to do the things that we've got to do here and to reach people for the Lord. Now, I'm going to move quickly here so we can get all this in because I've only got so much time. I don't have any more time. So give me three considerations about time. First of all, consider the sanctity of time. Consider the sanctity of time. 2 Corinthians 6 verse 2, Paul says, For he saith, I have heard thee in a time accepted." And in the day of salvation have I succored thee. Behold, now is the accepted time. Behold, now is the day of salvation. Now, perhaps you'd never thought about this, but time is linked to the death, burial, and resurrection of Christ. Time is sanctified. Remember what that means? Sanctified means set apart. It means to consecrate or to make holy. So time is sanctified in the sense that this moment, this time is to be used to receive Jesus Christ. Every time that the gospel message is presented to someone, there is an important meeting point. A very important meeting point. Two eternities meet every time a gospel presentation is made. First of all, there's the eternity of the past. And that's where a person, if he doesn't come to the Lord Jesus Christ, that he will spend eternity in a place called hell. And then there's the eternity of the future that meets there, and that's to believe in Jesus Christ. Receive Him as your personal Savior, and then spend eternity in heaven with Jesus. Two very important meeting points every time the gospel of Jesus Christ is given. Jesus came down to a particular sacred time when He died on the cross. He was reserved for that time. And you remember, after he'd done all that he was supposed to do, when he had completed all the work that the Father gave him to do, then Jesus said, it is finished. And at that moment, two eternities met. And without that one sacred moment, there's no hope for anybody who's in this room tonight or anybody in the world. Time is sacred. It's sanctified. So every time we give people the gospel, that's a reminder that that the person is to receive Christ right now because now is the accepted time. And so the apostle links time to the time that Jesus died. Now the next thing that we need to consider is the brevity of time. Last month, my wife and I were on vacation in Kentucky and we went there for my mom's 80th birthday. We had a large gathering and we got all of the family together. And when you get your family together like that for that kind of an occasion, you can't help but think, what happened to the time? Things have really changed. I mean, now I, I'm all grown up. I've gotten old myself. No amens there. I've gotten old myself. My, my mother is 80 years old. My children are all grown up. I've got a grandchild. And you just look at it and you wonder, what happened to the time? Where is time gone? It goes by so quickly. Well, we're put into the world for just a short time. It's brief, then it's over and time is never recovered. You never get time back. Once it's gone, that time is gone. And so if you waste time, you just need to remember that you'll never do all the things that you should have done. A wise person is one who considers the evil that's in this world, and instead of spending his time in all these frivolous activities, he dedicates his time to doing God's work. Now, sadly, there are many Christians that they're so worried about making money and all the things that go on in the world that they never reserve time for God. And I would dare say that any of us here tonight, if we, if we were to balance, try to balance out the time that we spend for God and the time that we spend on ourselves, we would find that our scales are woefully unbalanced. We don't spend enough time for God. And so what we do, we're foolish, really, And this is what Paul is talking about, wise people and foolish people. We're foolish when we continue to pursue all these things of the world and try to lay up these treasures right here on earth, where the Bible says those things will corrupt, people will steal them, they'll pass away, they don't last. That's where we spend our time and energy instead of working for the Lord and gaining all those treasures that'll be laid up in heaven where they'll never pass away. So a foolish person spends his time in the world, but a wise person spends time for God. How brief is time? Well, these are some words that are inscribed in a cathedral in England that said, When when as a child I laughed and wept, time crept. When as a youth I dreamt and talked, time walked. When I became a full-grown man, time ran. When older still I daily grew, time flew. Soon I shall find on traveling on... Time gone. And there are many, many people who come down to the end of their lives, and you know what they request? Just a little bit more time. Give me more time. But you can't recover time. When time's gone, it's all over. And we need to consider how brief that it is. Then next, a wise person will consider the urgency of time. And and this is just as simple as this. We don't know how much time we have. Time is urgent. Jesus said in Mark 13, Verily I say unto you that this generation shall not pass till all these things be done. Heaven and earth shall pass away, but my word shall not pass away. But of that day and that hour knoweth no man. Know not the angels which are in heaven, neither the Son but the Father. Take ye heed, watch and pray, for ye you know not when the time is. Do you know Jesus is speaking those words to Peter, James, John, John? Andrew. And those men were believers in him. They were followers. And he told them, you don't know when I'm coming back. And so you need to be prepared. You need to spend your time wisely. You need to spend your time doing what I tell you to do because you have no idea when I'm coming back. Now that's very important for us as well because what God has done for us, he's given us the wisdom to know to look for the second coming of Christ People who know Jesus look for that second coming. But what happens to the people of the world? I mean, are they regarding time and are they looking for that? Well, these people who don't know about Christ, they're doing something different. Listen to what Paul says in 1 Thessalonians chapter 5. But of the times and the seasons, brethren, ye have no need that I write unto you. For yourselves know perfectly that the day of the Lord so cometh as a thief in the night. For when they shall say, Peace and safety... Then sudden destruction cometh upon them as travail upon a woman with child, and they shall not escape. We just don't know how much time that we have. And you've got to think about the wisdom of God in not telling us how much time that we have. What if I could stand up here tonight, and I could tell you, Jesus is coming back in five years. What would you do? I know what you would do, and so does God. You'd spend four and a half years messing around, fooling around, and then about six months to go, you'd start to get a little bit busy. God knows that. And what do you think that the world would do if they knew that there was only five years to go and it's all going to be over? And you go to them and say, you know, you need to really believe in Jesus Christ because in five years, it's all going to be over. What are they going to say? Oh, okay, well, I've got about four four years and 11 months and 29 days then. To live it up and do what I want to do. And when it gets closer, then I'll believe. But God hasn't told us we have five years. He hasn't even told us we had five minutes. There's urgency to time. Now, it's all going to end in one of two ways. Either it's going to end in an untimely death. Or it's going to end in the timely second coming of the Lord Jesus Christ. And either way it goes, you better be ready for it. There's an urgency to time. So what a Christian, a wise Christian, will do this. He will maximize his time. He'll use it to the fullest for God's service. Well, let's go on. Analyze your walk. Maximize your time. And here's the third thing you need to do. Realize God's will. Verse 17 says, Wherefore, be ye not unwise, but understanding what the will of the Lord is. How do you understand the will of the Lord? And do you know that's a question that many, many Christians ask? I suppose that of all the questions I ever get asked from saved people, that would be the top question. How do I know what the will of the Lord is? How can I find that out? Well, I brought a message, I guess it was about a year or so ago about this, and I'm not going to preach that message tonight because time is urgent. I'm not going to preach that message. Let me give you just one point of the message. The one point was, and I think it was the main point of the message, the way to find out the will of God is through the Bible. The shortest path that you're going to find to the will of God is right straight through the pages of the Bible. You just start doing what God already says, and you find out what God says in the Bible. Now, many people think, that preachers and pastors have some kind of mystical ability to know what the will of God is. I mean, if you need to know the will of God, just go ask the preacher, because he knows the will of God. Well, it's not some mystical ability. I find out the will of God exactly the same way that you find it out. I go to the Word of God, and that's where I find out what God wants me to do. Now, I do know this, that the specific, minute details that God wants you to do as an individual, those little bitty details, I have no idea what they are. And the Bible doesn't tell what they are. But the overriding principles, what all people should do, and how all Christians should live, that is found in the Word of God. And that's the place you have to go to start this search for what the will of God is. You know, God never did this. He never said, I'm going to give you a vision. I'm going to give you a supernatural revelation. And there you'll find out my will. And neither did God say, I'm going to send you on a scavenger hunt. And you're going to have to search high and low and look under every rock to try to find out what my will is. He never told us to do that because he's already revealed his will. It's right here. So we start looking then. What is the will of God? How do I know the will of God? What's God want me to do? Well, the first thing that you do when you think about the will of God and realizing it is that you consider your salvation. What is the will of God? Well, first of all, we have to say the will of God is for you to be saved. The will of God is for you to be brought into God's kingdom. But you know, there's a lot of people that like to stop right there and they say, okay, the will of God is for me to get saved. I need to enter into God's kingdom. So I'm going to do that. And that must be where the will of God stops. It doesn't stop there. That's the beginning point for a Christian. Getting saved is the beginning point. There's other places to go in the will of God. What you need to do as a Christian next is to follow the Lord's command to be baptized. That's in the will of God. And accompanying that, according to the Word of God, is church membership... You come into the church through your baptism. And so the will of God is for Christians to be members of the Lord's church. And it doesn't stop there to be functioning members of the Lord's church. So this is what God does in regeneration. He first brings you to salvation, but then he brings you into service as well. That's all in the will of God. So the will of God for you, first of all, is to be saved. The second thing that's in the will of God is to consider your sanctification. God's will is for you to be sanctified, or as Paul put it in chapter 1, verse number 4, do you remember this? Be holy and without blame before him in love. In 1 Thessalonians 4, verse 3, he said, For this is the will of God, even your sanctification. Well, what's that sanctification he's talking about? Well, he's speaking about daily cleansing from the defilement of this world. All these sins that gather on you after you're saved, as you walk through this world, you live in this world, you need to be sanctified from those. You need to be purged and washed from those. Remember, Jesus bent down and he washed the disciples' feet, and he was teaching the disciples that you do need to be washed from that daily defilement. And he told Peter, he said, Peter, unless I wash your feet then you can have no part with me. And he meant, you can't come into my presence. You can't fellowship with me if you have sin in your life. So the will of God is for you to be sanctified to get the sin out of your life. Confess that sin. Be washed from its defilement because that is God's will for you. Third thing that you need to do, consider your submission. It's God's will for you to be in church. It's God's will for you to subject yourself to the authority of the church. And I might also add to the chief officer of the church, which is the pastor. Hebrews says, Obey them that have the rule over you and submit yourselves. For they watch for your souls as they that must give account that they may do it with joy and not with grief, for that is unprofitable for you. So every church member needs to submit himself to the authority of his church and to the authority of his pastor. But the Bible goes on and talks about other types of submission. What is a wife supposed to do? A wife is supposed to submit herself to her husband. We find it right here in this same chapter. Look at verse 22. Wives, submit yourselves unto your own husbands unto the Lord. So if a wife is out of submission to her husband, then she's out of the will of the Lord. But do you know there are many men who read that and they like to take that verse and just beat their wives over the head with that verse? You've got to be into submission. And they fail to read just a little bit further and find out there's some more information there that's in the will of God. It's in verse 25. It says, Husbands, love your wives, even as Christ also loved the church and gave himself for it. There you find out that men have... A huge responsibility. In this respect, there's more put upon them than there ever is on a wife because the scripture says that you are to love your wife even as Christ loved the church. That's a tall order. You know it? That is a tall order. And I promise you this, if you men, if you love your wives even as Christ loved the church, they will gladly submit themselves to you And they will gladly love you back when you love them in that way. What do we find out in the Bible? God's will is not really so hard to find if you just start looking in the right places and believe what you read. Now, here's something else that's in God's will. The next thing you need to do is to consider your suffering. Don't ever worry about this, that when you're trying to do things right, when you're trying to live for the Lord and you're trying to do God's will that you end up suffering and you have problems in your life. You know why? Because the Bible says that is exactly what's going to happen. God's even designed it that way. Second Timothy 3, verse 12, Yea, and all that will live godly in Christ Jesus shall suffer persecution. So God's designed it that way. I mean, when you're sailing along, nothing's going wrong. There's a wind at your back all the time. Calm waters all around you that's when you better start worrying whether you're in the will of God. Because Christians are going to suffer in this life for standing for Jesus Christ. So you can expect that it will come. But here's the whole thing about it. If you're lit in the will of God, and we're going to come to some other verses here a little bit later, when we start talking about being filled with the Spirit. But when you are filled with the Spirit and when you're in the will of God, suffering does not bother you. I mean, not in this sense. I mean, you can have joy through your suffering, because you're in the will of God. Peter said, but and if ye suffer for righteousness sake, happy are ye. You're not saddened by it. You look at it totally differently. Then he said in that same chapter, verse 17, 1 Peter three seventeen. for it is better if the will of God be so that you suffer for well-doing than for evil-doing. So it's going to come. You can expect it. Jesus said, as I spoke on Sunday, I think I mentioned the verse again, in the world you'll have tribulation, but then he said, Be of good cheer, I have overcome the world. So the message that we find in, in this passage for all believers, and in Ephesians five seventeen especially, is that God has given us wisdom to know his will. What we do is we look at all these little bits and pieces of information that we find in the Bible, and God shows us through the Holy Spirit what His will is, where He wants us to be, what He wants us to do. But on the other hand, you take a person who's lost, they don't have that wisdom. It hasn't been given to them, and so they read the Word of God, and they have no idea what they're supposed to do. They can't sustain their life in that. It just won't work for them because the Bible says that the things of the Spirit of God or the things of God are spiritually discerned. So you have to be a Christian. You have to know Jesus first. And everybody in this room tonight, you have the ability to know the will of God and you have the ability to walk wisely. So it comes down to this then. If you walk circumspectly and if you walk wisely, then God's Word says that you'll have everything that you desire. Now, there's a key to that, though. Everything that you desire will be everything that God desires for you. Psalm 37, verse 4 says, Delight thyself also in the Lord, and he shall give thee the desires of thine heart. And what this does, this whole thing pulls you into line where you're walking a parallel path with the Lord Jesus Christ. You're walking with him, and whatever he likes, you like. And what you like, he's pleased with. And there's a oneness there. That's what it means to walk circumspectly and to walk wisely. So the, the desires of regenerated heart are the desires of the Lord. Salvation changes us. Sanctification purifies us. Submission empowers us. And when all that happens, suffering will never bother us. We're going to talk about it a little bit more on Sunday. And you'll see why I say that. So don't be a fool. Walk wisely, the apostle says. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, we thank you for good lessons that we practical lessons that we learn from your word. Help us, Lord, to see this. May we depend upon you. Help us to realize the will that you have for us. Help us to look in the right places. And we know that you'll speak to us through your word, blessing this invitation tonight. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen. Let's